Well, we've come to the last uh, psalm uh, for us, not the last psalm in the Bible, but the last psalm for us uh, in our summer in the Psalms series. Kind of, kind of sad. It's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it, uh, studying and, and preaching them to you all. And I hope that you've been encouraged. I hope that you've been blessed and edified by them and by these last eight weeks. It's hard to believe it's already been eight weeks uh, since we've we've started them. Um, Lord willing, uh, next summer we'll take up this series. Uh, uh, we'll take this series back up again and continue with the Psalms. We're kind of working ourselves into a tradition, so we gotta have to stick to it now. Um, and so we'll we'll do that, Lord willing. Um, now, so so uh, we'll be getting back into our sermon series in Exodus. However, before we do that, starting uh, next week, uh, we're gonna we need to take up the topic of deacons. And so we have a short sermon series called the Diaconate coming up next week and for the following weeks as our church uh, takes up the idea and the topic of, of deacons. This is a very important topic for the life of our church. Uh, and so I encourage you to, to be a part and to lean in and to be praying for, praying for me as I prepare and preaching this series, but more on that um, coming up next week. Last week, our, our brother and, and elder, Pastor Bill, he preached um, to us from Psalm 15, um, which if you've heard it, uh, then you know that Psalm 15, as we just read it at the beginning of our gathering, is a Messianic psalm. And it began a new group of psalms that were starting in last week and moving this week, and we'll finish maybe next year, um, 15 through 24. Psalm 16 is also a messianic psalm. And the reason why is it because it points us to Christ. It points us to Jesus Christ in, in, a, in particular ways that it shows us that only in him can we and or will we ever be truly satisfied, truly content. Such a rare thing, contentment. We have so much. We've been given so much, and yet the thing that seems to be lacking so much is satisfaction and contentment. Let's look to Psalm 16, and let's begin reading together, starting in, in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge. For you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom all my delight. The sorrow of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, and you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. 
for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the paths of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At the right hand are pleasures forevermore. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. From reading this, I hope you can hear in in some ways, right, David's utmost contentment and satisfaction in the Lord, right? He he gives him his protection there in verses 1 through 4. The the Lord gives him provision in verses 5 through 6. He gives him sustenance and an inheritance, which, which, by the way, the sustenance and the inheritance is not stuff, but it's Yahweh himself. He gives David his presence in verses 7 through 8, through the counsel of his word and and the comfort that he experiences at night. He gives him his promises in verses 9 through 11, promises of, of peace and power and joyful presence. And so now when you hear this particular psalm as being one of satisfaction and joy and contentment, can you also hear in this psalm how it is a messianic psalm? Meaning when I say messianic psalm, that that it's a psalm that should be understood, that it's pointing to, it's prefiguring in some way the life and and work of the Messiah, right? The, The coming Messiah as redeemer or conqueror or king or priest or even savior. The Messianic Psalm describes a a, a type or the pattern of the Messiah that is to come. And David often wrote in these Psalms, or the psalmist often wrote and understood that that he was writing in particular about the coming Messiah. You can read that in in the words, and it makes sense. He's writing about someone else that is to come that would be greater than him, even though he is this particular pattern. But other times he's writing, and it seems also that he's writing about himself, and yet it still applies to the Messiah. As I just said, David David was, in a sense, a a pattern, a pattern of the the king that was to, to come. A very imperfect, mind you, pattern, but a pattern nonetheless, or a, or a type. And the, the writers of the, the New Testament would, would pick up on these ideas of these, these Messianic Psalms, and they would show us, they would, they would draw the line through, and they would show how, how Christ is the fulfillment of often, often many of those, of those particular Psalms. Psalm 16 is one of those Psalms. It's referenced specifically by the Apostle Peter and by the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, in his sermon, um, his sermon on Pentecost, he says this in Acts 2, verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did 
through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Meaning, hey, it hasn't been long since Jesus has been here. Right? Jesus was here, he was alive, and 50 days ago is when he was crucified, he was buried, and he rose again. And the whole, this whole event that, that everyone knows about and has been talking about since then in Jerusalem, this is what I am preaching about here in Jerusalem. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Meaning, meaning this was God's sovereign plan. The sending of his son who died on the cross, who rose again. This is God's sovereign, definite plan according to his foreknowledge. To send his son who, to be the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He goes on. He says, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. Again, meaning you are still guilty and culpable for your sin, for murdering the Son of God. Yet, verse 24, God raised him, loosened the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What is he talking about there? The resurrection, right? So what is Jesus preach or what is Peter preaching? Peter is preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is preaching the gospel as it is historically happened and theologically as God has accomplished salvation according to his will. That's what he's preaching. But in verse 25, Peter brings in now textual evidence of this by, by bringing in Psalm 16, showing us the foreknowledge of God of the resurrection of Jesus, proving these things to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 25, for the day for David says concerning him. All right, all right there's, a, there's a clue for us as we read the Bible that they are pointing us back to the Old Testament. Here's what David said. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So what is, what is Peter doing? He is quoting Psalm 16. We just read this. Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And Peter is saying to us, he says, this is what David is saying about himself. David is saying about himself that he believed in the promises of God that he too would be resurrected. That he too would be uh, brought back to life, even though he will die. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 29, Peter tells us, David died. And David was buried. And he says, David's still in the tomb. We can go do a, we, we can go there. I can show you David's tomb. We can, we can go where he, where he is, as, as Peter rightly explains. Dave, or David was not only a king, but he's saying that David was also a prophet. We know that David was a prophet as well. 
And David also knew that one of his descendants would come and reign on his throne forever. Which means that David understood himself not only as king anointed by God, but that he is this pattern of the type of king that would come. And so when David spoke concerning of himself, he was also speaking of the one to come. So not only is Psalm 16 speaking about David, himself knowing of his own experience that the Lord will fulfill his promise to him one day of resurrection, but Psalm 16 is also pointing us to the resurrection of the Messiah as Peter rightly uses as evidence that Christ is the Messiah. David is awaiting his bodily future resurrection, just as Peter tells us in Acts 2. And through the preaching of this, God's word, what happens in Acts? The good news, this good news of the bodily resurrection of Christ to the crowd in Jerusalem that day, 3,000 people believed and found their satisfaction in the Savior, Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 13, the uh, Apostle Paul, he makes the same argument to the Jews in, in Antioch, Pisidia. He quotes the promise there in, in from verse 10, for, for, you will, for you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And again, he is rightly acknowledging God's fulfillment of this in Christ. And then he applies that truth to them for what? For the forgiveness of sins, salvation, and satisfaction. That through this man, because he has been offered, Christ has been offered for the atonement of sin that was accepted by the Father, they could be saved. It's the same message. It's the same call to us. The call to come by faith. Now I, want, now, I wanted to go over that important biblical theology, not to bore you, I hope, but to show you and to draw you into God's sovereign intent over his word from Psalm 16 that is written not only for their forgiveness of sin and salvation, but also for ours, for our salvation and for our satisfaction in Christ. Psalm 16 is, is, is sort of opening a window this morning to us. That yes, it is, it is David who, who wrote these words, yet he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that by the Holy Spirit, we are, we are opening the window to seeing Christ in these words. When David says, I and me, in a sense, he's also speaking for Christ, the son of David, the son of God. When you read Psalm 16, you can, you can almost hear the thoughts of, of Jesus as he lived, knowing that the end of his life would be the cross. And so with his eyes fixed on the cross, you can almost read the thoughts of Jesus in this, in this psalm. And what do we hear? What is, what is, what is the thoughts? What is the feelings? What are the emotions that, that exudes from this psalm? Is it fear? 
Is it trepidation? Is it anxiety? Is it terror? Is it stress that is, that is spilling out? And certainly we see that throughout the Psalms, but is that here in this Messianic Psalm of Psalm 16? No. It's proclaiming satisfaction. It's proclaiming, I am satisfied in the Lord. Beloved, are you satisfied in Christ? And I know that question can, re, can get a reactive answer, and that is, of course I am. I'm, I'm here, aren't I? And to that I say, amen. And I know that's true. I, that's a good posture to have. But God's word digs at us deeper, doesn't it? it? It digs at us deeper, and it really looks at our hearts, doesn't it? It really looks at our hearts, because as this psalm is showing us Christ, it also is edifying us to be satisfied in Him as Christ was satisfied in His Father. And so in three ways, I want to show you how we are to be satisfied in Christ from this psalm, and that is our commitment, our contentment, and our confidence. The first point this morning, our satisfaction in the Lord, is that we must be sure in our commitment to Christ. And all of these are going to come directly to the text as we walk through almost verse by verse. A wise man will run to God and find his satisfaction and joy in him. And just as we, we heard that David is fully committed to the Lord for his protection and for his well-being, you, you might have noticed in reading this, for David, there is no plan B commitment here. There, there's no plan B. There's no, okay, I'm going to trust in the Lord, I'm going to look to Him, I'm going to be, I'm going to be satisfied in Him, but if that doesn't work out, I'm going to skedaddle over here. There's, there's no plan B. We, we like to have backup plans. And, and backup plans are, are good. And they are wise for many things. I, I like the saying, one is none, two is three, and three is two. Meaning, have a backup plan. Have redundancy. Be prepared. That, that's, that's wise. Sometimes when we get a flat tire, we, we need to put on a spare. It's good to have a good working spare. Right? Those are, those are smart things. Those are good things. It's good to have backup plans if, for a trip if the weather gets bad. Things like that. And yet this principle, as much as it is wise, sometimes we over-apply it in places and ways that maybe we shouldn't. Especially in the places where we have absolutely no control over. Places we want to have control, but things that we don't. And that is our security, our assurance, and our salvation, to name just a few. And yet, still in the, the futility of our own beings and natures, we try to assert control over those things. We try to apply our, our backup human plans of, of coercion and manipulation rather than the plan A is the only plan, and there is no plan B. And trust in the Lord, because that is the only plan for us. 
And rather, sometimes we say in our hearts one way or another that, that if God cuts it too close for my liking, if this goes on too long or goes too far, I need to step in. And what David is saying here is that his commitment to the Lord is it. There is nothing else. Look at verse 1. He says, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. To preserve literally means to keep. Which brings us back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. When the Lord told Adam to do what? To, to keep the garden and to preserve it, to cultivate it. And we all know how well that went. But here in verse 1, David turns around that language in a way, and he asks the Lord to keep him, to preserve him, to cultivate in him, to protect him, and to defend him. He's taken refuge in him, so he prays for this protection. Sort of in the same way as we understand Jesus praying for his father's plan for him. And his father's timing for him. We see Jesus' commitment to his father's plan, don't we? We see Jesus submitting and trusting in the Lord that this is it. This is plan A and there is no other plan because it is the best. Taking refuge in the Lord as sometime is seen as being that is what weak people do. Or you only do that when you are weak. And I think that that is a that is an incorrect view of this. I think when we see Jesus throughout his life, and, that, and even, again, David patterning this for us, Jesus being the fulfillment, the, 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 the perfect example of this, is that we see Jesus as the perfect example of masculinity. That throughout his life, in strength and in weakness, he's committed to his father's plan. And he's trusting and satisfied in his father's plan. What is the strongest thing for you to do? To trust in God's plan for your life and to be committed to it 100%. And to walk faithfully in it. The strong man turns to the Lord first. And in verse 2, David declares where his commitment lies by faith. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Remember the wicked say, remember the wicked who have said, who is the Lord? Right? The wicked throughout these Psalms have said, who is the Lord? We saw, if you remember back in Exodus, Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And here is David saying, you are my Lord. You are my, are my Lord. Think of the implications of such a 
declaration of truth that you are my Lord. It is you whom I serve. It is you whom I follow. It is your word that I study and that I meditate and I hide in my heart. It is you whom I want to bring glory with my life. It is you whom I submit to you in all things. It is you alone who can save me. It is to you whom I commit, and there is no other. Do you hear this? He is saying again, there's no plan B, Lord, and if you are Lord, then plan A is enough. There is nothing else. There is an absolute exclusivity in our commitment to the Lord. He is not to be shared with another. He is it. And in this commitment, he declares, he says, I have no good apart from you, right? So again, moving on with the the theme of what we heard from the previous psalm, Psalm 14, that there is no one who is good, not even one, including himself, but only the Lord alone is good. If the Lord alone is good, then that is something to be committed to. And this statement could also mean I love this. I thought this was a good translation. My good things are not over you. Think about that. Now, no matter how much of the good things that we have in our life, there's nothing that is better than you. There's nothing that I can elevate over you. And and some of us have some gloriously wonderful gifts that God has given us and blessings. But there is nothing in comparison to him. Because all of those things can fail. All of those things could die. They can go away in an instant. But the Lord is still good. He is still good. And David is saying, I refuse to exalt in anything over you. And so in both ways, there is nothing that is good and nothing that is greater than you that I can put above you in both ways. In every way, he is acknowledging that God is our only good and there is nothing that can compare to him. And that thought and that knowing, that understanding is what gives a deep root to our joy and our satisfaction in him. Do you realize how important it is for every Christian to be convinced of this? That only God is good. He is our good. And apart from him, we are evil. And we are wicked by our nature, but the Lord gives us good, doesn't he? One of the first prayers that I remember learning, and I'm sure one of the first prayers I'm sure you might remember learning, that you were taught to pray before you ate, is God is good, God is great. Let us thank him for our food. Amen. What a simple prayer. But it resounds so much truth. It resounds so much truth and thanksgiving, yes, for something simple like a meal, but that meal to us before us is a picture of God's goodness to us. It's not the end. God's goodness does not terminate it in the food, but it rolls up to his glory that we would be satisfied in the, the things that he has given us. 
And we can understand, we can believe that God is good. And these are little pictures of his goodness and his greatness. So adults, even pray that prayer when you pray, before you eat. There's nothing wrong with that. No need to be these elaborate prayers. Pray God is good, God is great, and let us thank him for our food. Amen. James 1.16 says, Do not be deceived, my brothers. And here's why he says this. Because in understanding God's goodness and the things that he has given us, we can be deceived. This is an area of deception for every single one of us. He says, verse 17, Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. We are tempted to think and find something good and satisfying somewhere else. We're tempted to find that something else is going to be that good that's going to give us that that's that sal or that that satisfaction that we so we need to commit ourselves to it. And did you realize that looking and turning to those things that that is the essence of all sin? The essence of all sin is to look at anything else and say that it is good in such a way that you can be satisfied in it outside of the provision of God. Outside of his provision and outside of his will. Let me give you a couple examples. A, a, a young woman can think that she will find love and security if she lives with her boyfriend. And all the trappings and things that go around with that. She's looking for something good or something else to satisfy. Something to, to, to find love and security that is apart from God's truth. A man can indulge himself into pornography or other forms of fornication. And in the same way, he is looking for a good thing in sexual pleasure, but he's looking for it apart from the Lord. God's good design for our good and for our joy, for human flourishing and to display the gospel is through monogamous heterosexual marriage. Justice is a good thing. We should want justice. We should pray for justice. But to crave it into, in such a way where we withhold forgiveness is taking revenge in our own hands. And may God have mercy on us if we do so. God says vengeance is mine. A greedy person can cling to his possessions as their security instead of taking refuge in the Lord. In any way of these things or any other way, when we look for some good apart from the Lord, we are attempting to find something that satisfies us more than God himself. You cannot commit yourself to the Lord and our, our, sancti our, excuse me, our satisfaction depends on it unless you believe that he is your only good and that every good gift comes from him. Everything then has a deeper and greater meaning, doesn't it? That it's not just a simple meal or a simple raise or the sunshine or a rainbow. Anyone see that rainbow the other night? Was it Monday or something? That everything rolls up with deeper, deeper implications 
for our joy and satisfaction because it's God who gives us those things. And he is our only good. I know we've been in for this for a while. We're only in verse 3, so let's go. He says in verse 3, and the commitment levels up, he says, as for the saints in the land, they are excellent ones in whom all my delight. And the commitment not only to the Lord is the one who, who pres- uh, uh, whom he preserves and keeps, the one who finds his refuge and is only as good, but, but this person also turns horizontally in the sense and is committed to his people committed to our to brothers and sisters in Christ. And it would seem that there would be a contradiction here, right? He says, he says here, as for the saints in the land, these are the people, the excellent ones in whom I delight. It seems like there's a contradiction that he's delighting in the people. He's finding some good in the people rather than in God alone. But there is no contradiction here. Between God being our only good and us delighting in God's people, because when we delight in the fellowship of the believers, we do not take from God's glory because God's people have been created for his glory. And therefore we, you, myself, we are given to one another as a part of those good gifts that God has given. So we can delight in one another because of our shared ultimate commitment to the love of the Lord with all that we are committed to the Lord is a commitment to God's people. 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Right? There's the essence and the sense of the gospel, of the, of the response, right? the belief by faith that God gives us. And everyone who loves the Father loves whomever has been born of him. So simple, right? so simple. The matter of fact is is this. We cannot be committed and satisfied in the Lord if we are not committed, love, the church, God's holy ones. We need fellowship, and that fellowship is God's good gift to us. We need instruction from one another, and that is God's good gift to us. We need godly, grace-giving accountability, and that is God's gift to us. We need correction and discipline of one another, and that is God's good gift to us. We need comfort and love and provision and the presence of God's people, and that is God's good gift to us. And if you delight in God's people, and to delight in God's people is to delight and enjoy and to be satisfied in God's goodness, and out of these three verses, all about commitment, there are so many psalms that are, that are written on that, that idea of being committed to God. We see it in Psalm 27, Psalm 73, right? One thing I ask of the Lord that I would seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire of his temple. There's commitment there. Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom, whom have I in heaven but you, but there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. Right? The, the inexhaustible joy and delight that is at the center of the, of the, uh, of the, center of the, of the gospel is this idea, brothers and sisters, that we get God himself. We get him. Not in an unholy, idolatrous kind of way, 
But true commitment is knowing in the deepest parts of our being that nothing compares to knowing Christ Jesus. Think of all the great blessings that it is to be a Christian. And all the good gifts that the Lord has given you. Is there, are there any one of them greater than he giving himself for you? Justification through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, has accomplished that. And that renews our commitment to Christ. The second point this morning, as I said, the first is our commitment. The second, as we find satisfaction in the Lord, we must be sure in our contentment in Christ. Christianity, especially in popular culture, has a caricature of being boring and no fun, no joy, no real fulfillment at all. At all. And I guess if you stopped at just the, level, the point commitment, then maybe you can... You can, you can do that, and that could sound, I guess, kind of terrible. But the Bible never asks us or has asked you or asked me to follow blindly, to follow an unknown, malevolent, tyrant God who only wants you to be miserable as you are trying to be obedient to an, infinitely, an infinite set of rules that are only set there to entrap you when you fail or when you fall. That's the caricature of Christianity, isn't it? And even Christianity itself, and I put that in quotes, unfortunately, has played into that caricature. Maybe that's where the caricature, in a sense, has come from. It's been taught as being graceless. It's been, it's been, it's been uh, uh, propagated as, as, as just filled with, um, filled with lots of, of works of external conformity to an unbiblical set of rules. But again, that's not the Bible, is it? That's not the, the, the presentation in the sense that we hear from Psalm 16, much less the rest of the Scripture. Right? That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the, that's not the, the gospel. But rather we see, yes, that God is holy and that He is just and He will not be mocked. Right? And He will execute His, his judgment and justice in our, our world. But we also see right along with it, especially here in Psalm 16, that, that our God is good, as we've already been saying, that he, is, that he is our only good. And to follow him, to be committed to him, is the only place in which, as creatures that he has created, can ever find contentment, the kind of satisfaction that we were created for. Following Christ and trusting Christ, brothers and sisters, beloved, is not a life sentence of misery. And if it is for you, then that's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. But rather, it's a life of true hope and joy. And again, let me, I don't think I have to say this, but let me just say it as a caveat. That doesn't mean sunshine and rainbows all the time. But it means that you're grounded. It means you're, you're rooted it means you can withstand the garbage that may come and the suffering and the sin. You can survive that. And ultimately, we find our hope in Christ 
And that's the truth that we hear David resounding in Psalm 16. Look at verse 4. He says, The sorrows of those who run, uh, uh, who run after other gods or another god shall multiply. Their drink offering of blood will be poured out, and, they take, and I will not take their names on their lips or take their names on my lips. So what does he say about first thing about contentment? He says, first, in being content is to acknowledge his refusal of the false and the fake. The first step, in a sense, of contentment is the refusal of the false and the fake. Contentment in Christ begins with saying no. Right? Look at what David says about those who are committed to sin. The wicked who think they are satisfied and following their own ways in their own desires, what's going to happen to them? Right? Their sorrows will be multiplied. That doesn't sound good. Multiplication is not good when it comes to sorrows. You want a subtraction there. Or you want division there. Not multiplication. And it means that their lives are not getting better, but they will be more painful. And not only that, this isn't just people that he is avoiding, but also their false gods and their idols and their sacrifices that they require. Guess what? Our culture who claims to be atheist, doesn't know any God, they worship gods that they have created in their own image, and they want you to worship them. They are telling you, they are demanding that you worship them. And what we should say, as David says, is this. No. No. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. No. Daniel in the lion's den. No. For the Lord is our God. And when he says no to them, he says yes to something else. So every, every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. Every time you say no to something, that means you're opening up the opportunity or chance to say yes to something else. And when he says no to this, what is he saying yes to? He's saying yes to the Lord. Look at verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places indeed, but I have, a, I have a beautiful inheritance. And this is the heart in, in, of, of joy right here, isn't it? This is the heart of contentment that is pressed into these two verses. Verse, verse 5, uh, the Lord is, is David's chosen portion. I love that, I love that language there because it's, it, it should, in a sense, remind us back to uh, when Joshua was leading Israel into the, into the land. And when they were lead, coming into the land, they were dividing the land between the tribes. And this is what they said, that each tribe was given to them their portion by lot. Ah, he's cueing us in. Each tribe was given their portion, their, their land by lot. The tribes that, that would get their inheritance, right? And this is the inheritance that they would pass down from generation to generation. But there was one tribe. There was one tribe that did not receive their inheritance as a portion of land. In Numbers 18.20, the Lord told the Levites that their inheritance was not land, but their inheritance was the Lord, is the Lord. Think about that. So, so David, he's, he's not a Levite, right? He's, he's not a Levite, but he's claiming that his portion is not land, not riches, not wealth, but his portion is the Lord. 
He is my lot. He is my inheritance. This is why I was saying, I said earlier that, that when David is saying that he is satisfied and content in the Lord, he's not saying I'm satisfied in just the stuff that God has given me. I'm satisfied in the one in whom who has given me these things. God himself. True contentment doesn't come from things that we gain in life. It doesn't come from property. It doesn't come from possessions, but it comes from knowing the Lord and that we get to be with him and being with him. Could there be any greater possession than having the Lord himself? Thank you. Nothing. And he proves that to us every morning, for his grace is new every morning. And yet, it gets better. Verse 7. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and also in the night my heart instructs me. I set the Lord always before me, because he is my right hand. I shall not be broken. Verse 7, David is thankful to the Lord's counsel. And what does he mean by that? I'm thankful for God's word. I'm thankful for God's word that counsels me and instructs me and draws me in. The counsel of the the Lord corrects him and and guides him. It keeps him on the the narrow road when when wayward feelings and emotions and temptations try to tempt him and to try to lead him astray. We can ask ourselves the questions, brothers and sisters, are you content with God's word? Is it a lamp unto your feet? Does it guide you, or is it other things that are guiding you? Is it YouTube that's guiding you? Is it Facebook? Is it the TikTok? Is it the little shorts that you press, we can get into so much? Or is it God's word that's a lamp unto your feet? What is guiding you? Is his counsel guiding you? Are you content with God's word as being the right counsel for you? Is there a plan B to God's word for you? Is there somewhere else, some other philosophy, some other unique didactic teaching that's interesting, that leads us astray, or other political things? In verse 8, not only is it God's counsel, but it's the presence of the Lord that gives us comfort. Oh, how, oh, how, how, how. David uniquely in all the Old Testament, I think, understood this as I believe the Holy Spirit of God was on him in many ways and times and places. He understood this, but I think we understand it even more, don't we? Because we have the Holy Spirit, the the presence of God through his Holy Spirit. And these, God's word and his his presence of his Holy Spirit that he has given us as reminders every day to be content in all things. the the glorious counsel of his word and his Holy Spirit. And Paul was a pretty content fellow. Pretty content fellow despite the hardships that he faced. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses. What? I am content with insults and hardships, persecutions and calamities. All of which, at least uh, together... We, we, we have a hard time grasping. Maybe in a few ways we understand. He says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. <laughs> Can you say I am content with the Lord? Contentment is God's good plan for you in him. 
And as we ultimately read, Psalm 16 is a messianic psalm. Has there ever been another man who has ever been more content than Christ? Content in his father's plan. And contentment in Christ and contentment in the Lord is for our joy and for our satisfaction in him. And lastly, as our satisfaction in the Lord, we can have confidence in him. That's the third point, confidence in Christ. You look at verse 9 and he says, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. So, so there's contentment. All right, there's, there's contentment. My, my heart is, is glad. My whole being rejoices, right? Here's, here's contentment. Worship from the heart is an overflow of contentment of Christ. But also as we are content in Christ, what grows in that is what? Confidence. What grows in that is confidence. Not confidence in our hearts, not confidence in our flesh, but confidence in the Lord. He says confidence because my flesh also dwells secure. So not just in our minds, the confidence is not just in our minds, not just in our hearts, not just in our souls, but it's a confidence that we can feel and that we can act upon in the flesh. That's amazing. I was reading an article this week in the, um, the Voice of the Martyrs magazine. Not sure if you're familiar with it, doesn't matter. And, and this week, or at least when I was reading it, the story that I read was, was telling of a church in the Middle East. And in 2012, which was the, the growing height of, of, of ISIS um, taking control of many parts of the Middle East, um, uh, lots of persecution began to spread throughout the Middle East. Uh, against the church and against Christians, um, um, tr- very, very bad, very uh, horrible, horrible things that they did to Christians. And in this particular story, as as it was, as it said, is, is that this particular church they were worshiping on a Sunday morning, as and as they were worshiping, just like we are, uh, a bunch of terrorists burst through the back door. And, of course, to say the least, startled them. But they burst into the do- through the doors, as you can imagine, fully armed and threatening everyone to death. The, the pastor who was preaching at the moment, just like I am doing now, of course, again, to say the least, was startled. And he said in the article that he felt the terror and the fear of death rush over all of them as he saw it as well in the eyes and the people of his congregation. Chaos was just in the room, right? Chaos in the room. Um, Women and children were were screaming. The men were getting hit by the rifles and pressed to the ground and held at gunpoint. People were yelling. The terrorists were yelling. I mean, it was chaos. And in the article, the pastor said that in the midst of such chaos and not knowing what to do, and he said he believed that the Lord reminded him of the scripture. And at that moment, he was reminded from the book of Acts, he was reminded from the book of Acts the story of Stephen when Stephen was stoned to death. 
not exactly the story you kind of want to remember when you as well are on the precipice of death. And Stephen, if you might remember, he was also faced by an enraged group of people that hated the message that he just preached. He hated the message that he, that he just preached. And he knew from their, in, their enrage around him that they were about to brutally kill him. They were about to brutally kill him. And yet Stephen, he didn't cry out in fear. He didn't yell out in chaos and terror. But rather Stephen looked up and he saw the heavens open. And what did he see? He saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And in the chaos, this pastor is remembering this story. And remembering the story and still standing, he said it's still at the pulpit or the front, wherever. He hushed the congregation. And he told them this. And in the midst of these guys yelling and still pushing people and trying to take stuff or whatever they're doing, hitting people. And it reminds, he reminds them of this, that there is no fear. There's no reason to be fear. We look up, we can see the Son of Man who is standing at the right hand of the Father. And instantly the whole church began one by one, the whole demeanor of the congregation began to change. One by one, by one the, the congregation was hushed and their demeanor changed from, from, from fear and terror to calm and confidence. Even the, the terrorists themselves, their, their demeanor changed. Like, what is going on? This isn't the reaction that terrorists, their whole idea is to cause terror, is not happening anymore. What happened? Am I gun fake? What's going on? And their demeanor began to change. And what happened was, is at the end of the day, the end of the play, they ended up just trashing the place, stealing from them, taking some of their stuff, and telling them that if you meet here again, we're going to kill you. And they were like, whatever, we're going to meet here next week. And they did. And nothing happened. Praise God. But what won the day was confidence. And that confidence was, was firmly rooted in what? The Son of Man that is standing at the right hand of God, going back to the beginning of how I started this sermon, the confidence in the resurrected Savior. And what did that do? It gave them a peace in their flesh. It gave them peace in their flesh. That made them secure that day. And so when we read verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or see the Holy One to, of corruption, we understand, right, again, that this is David looking forward to his future resurrection, but ultimately fulfilled in, in Christ. But here it is, right, that, that the, as they preached it and they rightly applied it here, uh, we understand that it applies to us as well. That what gives us hope is ultimately that Christ is risen from the dead. In Mark 9, 31, Jesus said, The Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men. They will, they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. And don't you think that Psalm 16 is running through his mind to be able to say such a thing about himself? And what does that do? That gives confidence. Jesus wasn't abandoned. He wasn't abandoned to corruption, but he was victoriously raised from the dead. 
Ultimately, the confidence that we need, brothers and sisters, that if you are a follower of Christ, is the confidence in knowing that this life in which we live now, that we press so much into, that we, 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 try, we cultivate it as much as we can, is not it. That this is not it. That there is more than this life. There is more than just death. And there's more than just burial. But for those who are in Christ, there will be a resurrection. Let that sink in. For those who have lost, there will be a resurrection. And even though we understand and we feel that in the flesh that there is a sting of death, and that death is sin, we know that. And we feel it almost on a daily basis. We understand the power of sin is the law, that we are guilty and we are in shame in our sin, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 56. But God, who raised his son up from the grave, has given us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning this, like David, we can know, we can believe, we can hope, How about we can be confident that we too will be resurrected because Jesus himself has been resurrected and that we will not be left abandoned to Sheol. You will not be left abandoned in death or corruption because when Christ comes again, death will be swallowed up in victory and with new resurrection, our bodies will rise and we will all sing together, mocking death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And now we can have confidence in that very fact and that very truth because Christ, the Son of Man, who is resurrected, is at the right hand of our Father. And as verse 11 says, it is giving us pleasures forevermore. Christ is resurrected from the dead. This isn't just for our future, but it is for here And it is for now. And I saved the last verse for our closing this morning. And I think it's a fitting verse to close on for our summer in the Psalms this year. You make known to me the paths of life. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When you are committed, when you are content and confident, then verse 11 is like a theme of satisfaction and joy. It's like, a, it's like your banner waving in, in the wind as you march through this life. Saying, this is where I'm satisfied. This is my joy. He knows our paths and he's, he's guiding us. He gives us his presence. And in his presence there is fullness of joy. Not half joy, not quarter joy, not my gas tank where it is joy but the fullness of joy. The fullness of joy. And the very simple for ending this morning is this. Satisfaction in the Lord and Jesus Christ, as we all just said, produces pleasures forevermore. I want to dive into the depths of what that means. (laughs) And I think one day we will see that. That'll be beyond comparison to what we could ever fathom or imagine. 
but the ultimate thing is not the pleasures and things that we will find in heaven or in the new heavens or in new earth, but the pleasures forevermore is Christ himself. Christ himself. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, let us find rest in him. And let that be our anthem together. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.